All right, turning your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 34. It's on page 28 of the Bible underneath your chair. If you don't have a Bible with you, please take advantage of that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have it. Friends, what we're going to do just now is what we do every week here at Redeeming Grace. I'm going to take a passage of the scripture, God's word, and I'm going to preach it. And I'm going to try to let the agenda of the text set the agenda of the sermon. And we call that expository or expositional preaching. You hear that word expose in there. We're seeking to expose God's word on its own terms, not impose our own terms and ideas and agendas on it. And let me just say this. If there is ever a biblical text that proves our commitment to expository preaching here at Redeeming Grace Church, I imagine it's Genesis chapter 34. Uh, This portion of the scripture that we're going to study this morning is unrelentingly dark. It contains unspeakable atrocities, one against the people of God and one by the people of God. In fact, it's so dark that I could not find a fitting verse to put on the cover of the the bulletin this morning, as is our custom. I didn't want you to be Debbie Downer as you walk in and saw it. We just left it blank. This is a hard text. As much as I'm tempted to make my life easier and just skip on right by it, I believe that Moses, through the controlling influence of the Spirit, included this historical account in Genesis 34 for a reason. As much as what we're about to read seems morally chaotic and repugnant, and it is, we approach the biblical text this morning with the presupposition that this passage, though full of disgusting events, is part of God's revealed word to us. And therefore, he has designed it to teach us more about him, more about us, and more about his gospel. Before we get into it, I want to say a word to those of you who are here and you're not Christians. Uh, Perhaps you're even this morning questioning the validity, the reliability, the truthfulness of God's word. Let me encourage you, friend, as you hear this portion of scripture today, at the very least, you ought to be impressed by the raw honesty of the Bible. There's no sugarcoating going on here. There's no glossing over the evil done to Dinah, nor the passivity of Jacob, nor the evil done by her brothers. The Bible is brutally faithful in recording even the greatest sins of his people. But more than just impressing you by its honesty, I think this portion of scripture signals the truthfulness and the reliability of the Bible. Think about it. If you were attempting to fabricate a story of the origins of the religion of the one true and living God, Would you write a story like this about the founders of the faith, the patriarchs? No, no way. You would never, ever write this type of story. One pastor, Presbyterian brother, gone on to be with the Lord, James Montgomery Boyce, wrote this. Whenever the Bible contains material that reflects so badly, not merely upon the the general sins of humanity, but upon the particular wickedness in the hearts and lives of God's people. This is evidence of the divine and not merely the human origin of the scriptures. Friends, what we're about to read functions like a witness in the courtroom testifying to the truthfulness of the Bible, but it also serves to warn us, doesn't it, of the wickedness of our hearts and to magnify the mercy of our God. So let's read the text this morning. We're gonna begin in verse 18 of chapter 33, and we're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 34. 
And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give, give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition, we will agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take our daughters, your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do such uh, do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell on the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I 
in my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Well, presumably, several years have gone by in between chapters 33 and 34. When Jacob and his family started their trek back to the promised land from the, their exile in the northeast, Dinah was seven years old, as best we can tell. But by the time we get to chapter 34, she's a young woman, perhaps a teenager. Even though several years have gone by, the text really doesn't read like that, does it? It turns on a dime from the good things we see in chapters 32 and 33 to the horror of chapter 34. Remember back in chapter 32, Jacob saw God's camp, the reminder of his continuing presence with him. And then Jacob saw God's face, as it were, at Peniel when God graciously transformed him. And then in chapter 33, God answered Jacob's prayer and restored his relationship to his brother Esau, whom he had defrauded so many years before. Surely from these high water marks, Jacob's life would just get better and easier from here. But it seems that no sooner has the dawn of hope risen in Jacob's life that it is eclipsed by the darkness of evil. Not just outside his family, but inside it as well. And I think the question we should be asking at this point, knowing the storyline of Genesis, is this. Will God's promises fall flat now? Have Jacob's sons put the promises in mortal jeopardy by their revenge against the Shechemites? Will the inhabitants of the land get back at their family? Will, will they kill them? Will they drive them from the land of promise? Will God's covenant promises of land and offspring and blessing return empty after all? And beyond the story's fit in the biblical storyline, we can't help but think, what in the world are we supposed to learn from this? What are we supposed to take away from a passage this scandalous and this gruesome? Well, friends, I hope to answer those questions in due time, but at this point, let me give you one takeaway, which is what I hope you'll see is the main idea of the passage. If you're taking notes, here it is. The main idea, don't be shocked by human evil, but by divine mercy. Don't be shocked by human evil, but by divine mercy. The structure of this account isn't too difficult to see. In verses one to four, we see that horrific act that Shechem, the prince of the land, committed against Dinah. I'm gonna summarize verses one to four in point number one, which I'm calling the atrocity. And then in verses five to 24, we see the responses of both Jacob and uh, his sons, of course, and then Shechem and his father. I'm going to summarize those verses in point number two, what I'm calling the proposal. And then in verses 25 to 31, we see this vengeance, the revenge of Simeon and Levi killing all the men of Shechem. I'm going to summarize those verses in point three, the revenge, the atrocity, the proposal, and the revenge. And what I'm going to do is just explain the story. I'm going to front load the explanation, and then I'm going to do application mostly at the end of the sermon. This morning, brothers and sisters, I pray that this passage might at the same time sober us as we consider the utter depravity and wickedness that dwells in human, human hearts, while at the same time cause us to marvel at the mercy of God to depraved sinners like us. 
Number one, the atrocity. Well, the last few verses of chapter 33 tell us that after Jacob parted from Esau, he migrated to Succoth, or as Jerry Weissman corrected me, Sukkoth. So sorry, Jerry, last week. And then moved on to Shechem. And at Shechem, he bought a piece of land from Hamor, the tribal king of the area, for 100 pieces of silver. It really is remarkable, isn't it, that now Jacob, like his grandfather Abraham, who bought a burial plot from the Hittites, Jacob now owns a parcel of Canaan. He possesses a portion of the promised land. And as encouraging as that sounds, the story immediately turns dark. According to verse 1 of chapter 34, Dinah, who was the young daughter of Leah, remember that's Jacob's unfavored wife, went out to see the women of the land, the text says. And while we don't know exactly what Dinah was up to, Moses phrases that in such a way that I think we're supposed to gather that Dinah should not have gone out like she did. Perhaps in her youth and in her immaturity, she was curious about how the Canaanite women behaved. Perhaps she wanted to experience some of those things herself. We don't know. But I think it's safe to say that Dinah made an unwise decision. She left the safety net of her family as the special people of God, the covenant people, to hang out with godless pagans who were under God's curse. Please hear me. I am not saying that what happens next is Dinah's fault. I am not saying that. She's about to be the victim of a horrific crime. But I imagine she regretted her choice to go out and see the women of the land. Teenagers, I think there's a lesson here. As the proverb says, Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Choose your companions, your friends wisely. As Dinah was fraternizing with the women of the city, Shechem, this this up and coming prince of the land, noticed her. And notice how verse 2 describes what he does next. It's just described in this rapid fire way. It highlights his lust, doesn't it? He saw her. He seized her. He lay with her. He humiliated her. Shechem's desire sparks, and then mixed with his hubris, it becomes a raging inferno. And I think it's fairly clear from the text that this encounter was not consensual. Shechem forcefully seized Dinah, and he, as the text says, humiliated her. Verse 6 describes what happened as Dinah being defiled. And then down in verse 7, the sons of Jacob become angry because Shechem had done, quote, an outrageous thing in Israel. That term, an outrageous thing, is often used in other places of the Bible to describe grievous sexual sin, including Amnon's rape of his sister Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. So I think that's a textual clue that what went on was Shechem violating Dinah. And our heart should break when we read this. Shechem assaulted Jacob's daughter Dinah. He stole in her innocence. He seized and enjoyed what was not his to seize and enjoy. My friends, it was not uncommon in the ancient Near East for men to force themselves upon women in order to claim them. It was not uncommon. But friends, that cultural norm only highlights the wickedness of the people of the land. 
Moses, our narrator, doesn't want us to read this account and think, oh, this behavior was okay since it was the cultural expectation and norm. No, he uses vivid language for us to feel the shock and the horror of this wickedness. He does not mince words, does he? Shechem defiled Dinah. It's a term of ritual uncleanness. He wants us to feel in our bones how evil this act was. And friends, let me just point out as a brief aside that this is consistent with the Bible's high view of women. In fact, I would go so far to say that no other world religion has such a view of women as does Christianity. All you have to do is to think about how women are treated in a Muslim context to know what I mean. Or think back to the ancient Hindu practice of sati where women were expected to offer themselves to be burned on the funeral pyre of their husbands. Friends, the Bible teaches that in creation, women are bearers of God's image with men equal in dignity and worth. And in redemption, women are co-heirs of the grace of life, equal recipients of God's redeeming love in Christ. So don't let our culture's parody of Christianity make you doubt this. The Handmaid's Tale and Hollywood's portrayal of, of women in Christian circles, as oppressed and belittled, do not square with what the Bible portrays and what the Bible commands. The Bible consistently honors women and pushes their dignity up as high as it could, as high as it can. And as men, even on this Father's Day, we have the responsibility to cherish and protect and provide for the women in our life in ways appropriate to their relationship with us. Shechem's action is reprehensible. And yet, in some sort of perverse twist, the Bible says that Shechem's assault of Dinah only inflamed his desire for her. Verse 3 says that he loved her. He spoke tenderly to her. It sounds honestly very much like the manipulation and grooming tactics of abusers today who try to persuade their victims that what they experienced was normal or even a good or a loving thing. Shechem's lust knew no bounds. Notice his demand to his father, Hamor, in verse four, get this girl for my wife. Friends, we ought to be recoiling in horror at this point. And yet, sadly, the darkness does not relent. Let's notice second, the proposal. The proposal in verses five to 24. In verse five, we see Jacob's response. Remarkably, it's measured. Verse five says that he held his peace until his sons came in from the field. And at first glance, you might think that Jacob exercised a godly self-restraint here. But I don't think that's how this chapter portrays him. Jacob seems to be morally paralyzed the entire time. He's characterized by passivity in the entire chapter from start to finish. I think what Moses implies is, is this, because the sons were out in the field, did you notice that? The sons were out in the field. Therefore, who had the responsibility for Dinah? Well, clearly Jacob, but he failed. He failed to protect her. And then, and then once the dominoes of evil start falling, Jacob is completely silent. We don't hear him say a word until the very end when he chastises his sons for jeopardizing his standing in the region. Nowhere do we see any 
outrage or moral indignation from Jacob, like we see in his sons. We don't see him demanding justice and retribution from Hamor and Shechem in his negotiation with, with them. Maybe he was nervous that Shechem would take back force, forcefully the land that he had sold to Jacob. I don't know. But what's glaringly absent from Jacob in this moment is the type of godly, fatherly instinct that rises to, the, to defend the honor of his daughter. Friends, there's no doubt. No question, there are times when our responses ought to be measured and calculated, and certainly our response to evil and injustice ought always to be godly and controlled by the Holy Spirit. But there are certain times that we must grow a spiritual spine and take a stand with moral courage to say what needs to be said and to do what needs to be done. We never ought to shrink from the moment out of fear for our skin or the loss of our reputation and status. That seems to be what Jacob does here. Sadly, the Me Too moment that we've found ourselves in over the past few years isn't something only outside the church's walls. It's apparent to us now that sexual violence and abuse have been coddled and covered in Christ's church for the sake of preserving reputation, it seems, and avoiding scandal. And meanwhile, while certain pastors protect their platform, victims suffer. Friends, there is no ministry reputation worth saving that doesn't deal courageously and faithfully with sexual violence and abuse. I just hope to encourage you, if God forbid this type of thing would happen within the church family of RGC, I pray and I know that we have a group of elders that by God's grace, God enabling us, will do everything we can to protect the vulnerable and to pursue justice. In that moment, our paramount concern as elders must not be our own reputation or even the reputation of our church, but the glory of our King and the good of his people. The next few verses describe this proposal that Hamor and Shechem made to Jacob. Basically, basically the deal is this. Hamor proposed uh, Dinah to Shechem, right? You give Shechem Dinah. In exchange, we're going to give you our daughters for your sons. We're going to give you our land. We're going we're to open up free trade, free commerce. We're going to increase your property. He's basically saying that Jacob's family would be given the full rights as citizens of Shechem. This deal would be to their great financial advantage. Now, at this point, I mean, all types of warning bells and lights ought to be going off in your mind, right? We've seen, what, we've seen this story before, right? Cue Lot. Cue Sodom and Gomorrah. When, God, when God's people make their bed with the Canaanites, it does not turn out well. We remember the, the, the great measures that Abraham and Isaac took to prevent their sons from marrying the Canaanites. It would have jeopardized the promises that they carried. They were not to intermarry. But beyond the offer of wives, friends, I think if you listen carefully enough to Hamor's offer of land, you will hear the hiss of a serpent behind it. God had promised to give them the land by his grace. They didn't need to compromise their integrity in order to grasp it. 
In verses 11 and 12, Shechem ups the ante and he invites Jacob and his sons, hey, name your price. The sky's the limit. No bride price is too great. That's how much I want Dinah. And at face value, it seems that Hamor and Shechem are operating in good faith, right? But you know what's absent from, from their conversation and their negotiation with Jacob and his sons? You know what's absent? Contrition. Admission of guilt. Acknowledgement of wrongdoing. These guys are just carrying on with business as usual, and it leaves the impression that they are trying to normalize Shechem's wickedness. Hey, this is just part of acquiring a wife in Shechem. Look at verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Apparently, deceit is the family trait. Jacob's family. And what are these brothers counter offer? Well, they'll accept the terms of every male in Shechem get circumcised. I mean, this is amazing. They use the veneer of religiosity as a ploy to kill the Shechemites. Oh, it would be a disgrace to us if our sister married uncircumcised men or uncircumcised man. But even in that moment, they were plotting their revenge. You know, it would be bad enough if these brothers had merely lied and connived to get what they wanted in their revenge. But look how they did it. They weaponized the covenant sign that God had ordained to mark them off as his people, as the very trap by which they would get their vengeance. They took the sign of the covenant and the word of promise and they sullied it. So trivial in their minds was their relationship with Yahweh that they were willing to use a holy sign for their wicked ends. It would be like us as elders somehow using the new covenant sign of baptism to extort our members and to pad our pockets with cash. It'd be like using the Lord's Supper to poison people. Jacob's sons seem as godless or even more so than the Canaanites. And I don't know about you, but this counterproposal seems outlandish at first glance. Surely, surely there's no way that all the men of Shechem would submit to circumcision in their adult years for the sake of this prince's marriage. No way. But did you notice that is not how Shechem and Hamor presented it to the men at the city gate? They very conveniently didn't mention anything about the marriage arrangement. Instead, they duped all the men into circumcision by promising them wealth and prosperity. And we see the result in verse 24. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Friends, I wish we could kind of lighten things up right now. I wish so bad the story would do that. It would provide for an easier preaching event, wouldn't it? But as soon as we see the atrocity, as soon as we see the proposal, we're moving right on to the revenge. Verse 25 explains the end game behind the circumcision ruse. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it was still secure and killed all the males. 
They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So Simeon and Levi are also sons of Jacob by Leah. So these are Dinah's full blood brothers. And they attacked at the optimum moment when the men's wounds were the most tender and they were the most incapacitated. They capitalized on the vulnerability of the city's defense with all the men down for the count. And these brothers not only rescued Dinah, what did they do? They killed Shechem. They killed Hamor. And they killed all the men of Shechem. And here's the thing. I don't think we, we ought to think that, hey, the brothers should not have been angry in this moment. I don't think that's what our response is to be. There are times when wickedness and injustice in the world around us ought to make us tremble in righteous anger. There are times when the godly response isn't coolness, but indignation. Not all anger is sinful. In fact, what did Paul write in Ephesians? He's quoting Psalm 4. Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, it's possible to be angry and to not sin against the Lord. We ought never to give ourselves over to anger, nor to sin because of our anger. But what do we see from Simeon and Levi? Not mere indignation, but uncontrolled rage. Not only did they take matters into their own hands, their retribution did not fit the crime. Shechem alone was the one who had violated Dinah. He alone deserved punishment. And yet Simeon and Levi killed all the men who did not deserve to die. And it gets worse. In verse 27, it just seems like all the boys join in. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took the flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. These guys are looting and plundering the dead. And in the most tragic irony, their vengeance for the defilement of one woman led to the painful capture and mistreatment of many women and their children. These men were cruel. And again, they seem almost worse than the Shechemites. And then to tie a nice bow on this brutal account, we once again see Jacob failing as a father. His rebuke of Simeon and Levi in verse 30 seems to be more concerned about his own reputation than the glory of God. He cares more about his safety than he does in dealing with his sons. Now, now maybe, maybe a charitable reading of Jacob here would, would say that, well, he's concerned for the continuation of the promise. But I just don't think it reads that way. He seems to be more concerned about his stinky reputation and the loss of status than anything else. His family's out of control. He's no ability to control his sons. The men of Shechem lay dead in their beds while their families suffered. Dinah is recovering from a violent trauma, and yet all that Jacob can think about is his reputation and his protection. 
Look at verse 31 for the son's reply. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Which of course Shechem did. And that's how it ends. Wait, what? No narration to help us make sense of this? No repentance by Jacob or his sons? No, no mention of God in the entire account? Nope. Just unchecked sin piling up layer upon layer upon layer. So friend, I ask again, what in the world, what in the world are we supposed to learn from this story? Why is it in the Bible? I want to answer our, that, those questions in our remaining time. I want to give you four reasons why I believe this story is in the Bible and therefore four things that we're supposed to, to learn from this story. Number one, the story is in the Bible to warn us of the folly of living life unmindful of God. Friends, I just mentioned it, but did you notice what is glaringly absent from this account? The reality of the Lord in anyone's thinking or actions. That, that desperate dependence upon God that Jacob had just learned at Peniel years before in his, his wrestling match with God seems stunningly absent here. Jacob's sons act in complete godlessness in their killing spree. There's no prayer. There's no evidence of God-centered thinking. And I know it's a bit of an argument from silence, but I, I think we could say that God does not seem to be in their thinking. And look at the results. Friends, indeed, this passage is designed to provoke a moral revulsion in you. It's designed to make you recoil at Shechem's assault of Dinah and shudder at Simeon and Levi's revenge. But let's take it a step farther. This passage is a warning shot across the bow of our souls about the danger of living life without God at the center of it. How easy is it when someone does something to hurt us that instead of taking it to the Lord and entrusting it to him that we unbridle our passions and give free reign to our anger. How convenient is it when our reputation is at stake to simply put it on autopilot and instinctively self-protect? All the while, God is at the outskirts. He's at the margins of our thinking. Friend, let this passage chasten you. It is foolish and eternally dangerous to live your life unmindful of the Lord. It's foolish and eternally dangerous to toy around with sin and to act like you can play next to the fire and not be burned. Friend, don't do that. Run to God. Stay close to Jesus. This passage warns us of the folly of living life unmindful of God. Number two, this passage is in the Bible to make clear that God's promises unfold by his grace and power alone. In case you've noticed, haven't noticed, this is a, a theme we see over and over again in Genesis, isn't it? God's purpose is to do what? We saw it in Genesis 3.15. One day he's going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to bless the nations through the line of promise. But friends, that doesn't happen because those in the line of promise are paragons of virtue, but despite the fact that they aren't. Friends, only God's grace keeps the promises alive. 
not the moral perfections of Jacob and his sons. The son's actions indeed put the family in jeopardy of retaliation. The line of promise is now in the crosshairs of the Canaanites. But if you scan your eyes over to chapter 35, scan your eyes over to 35, look at verse 5, you'll see God supernaturally protecting Jacob's family. He intervened. He was faithful, even when they were not. Beloved, the biggest scandal of this story might not be what Shechem did to Dinah or what Simeon and Levi did to the citizens of Shechem. The biggest scandal might very well be that God would continue to fulfill his promises through these guys. That he would give their descendants the land of promise. That he would give the Messiah, the one who would rescue the world from sin and death through these guys' family tree. Friends, we see the depravity and rebellion of mankind on display from the garden on. We know the horrific sin that lodges deeply in our own hearts. And as we understand the consequences of the fall and the curse, we need not be shocked by the evil of this world. We ought not to get used to it either. I'm not saying that, but the evil of this world should not shock us. What ought to stun us again and again and again isn't the extent of our depravity, but the extent of God's mercy. We see God's grace in the descendants of Levi. Here's this wretch of a man going into full Rambo mode, an unbridled vengeance. And yet what honor does God give the descendants of Levi? Have you ever read the book of Leviticus? He gave them the priesthood. Levi sinfully defended the honor of Dinah, but his children would defend the honor of Yahweh. Levi sought to curse Shechem, but his children would seek the blessing of God for the nations through a purified Israel. Levi operated without any sense of God's presence, and yet his children would go into the very holy of holies one day to make atonement on behalf of the sins of the people and to offer sacrifices daily to symbolize the people's need for forgiveness. All of this, of course, pointing forward in time to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, our great high priest, and his once for all sacrifice for sin. Friends, God's promises unfold by his grace and power alone. Number three, this passages in the Bible to remind us that vengeance is God's prerogative. You know, I imagine if we were watching a movie of these events of chapter 34, we might find ourselves pulling for the sons of Jacob. What do you think? Hollywood is full of movies about revenge and vigilante justice. And often the protagonist of a movie is the one pursuing vengeance. So we find ourselves pulling for the likes of Inigo Montoya, and the Princess Bride, or the Count of Monte Cristo, or Maximus and Gladiator. And we find ourselves satisfied and glad when they finally achieve their revenge. But beloved, the consistent message of the Bible is that the prerogative of vengeance does not rest on our shoulders, but on the Lord's that he is a God of perfect and complete justice, that he weighs the scales fairly and that no injustice escapes his wrath. 
You know, the reason that God could say, say later in the Pentateuch, this same set of, of, of books, of writings that Moses wrote, in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. Paul quoted it in Romans 12, vengeance is mine. How could he, God say that? Because he had already earlier in the chapter to, laid down the foundation that he is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. All through the Psalms, the songwriters call out for God. We read it in the call to worship. Oh, God of vengeance, shine forth. That's why Paul could say what he said in Romans 12 that we read earlier. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Did you catch that? He didn't say leave it to the grace of God. He didn't say leave it to the love of God. He says to leave the injustices and wrongs against us to what? To the wrath of God. In other words, instead of giving those who wrong against us, uh, do wrong against us what's coming to them, instead of planning and scheming how we might humiliate them, we're to rest in the fact that there is a righteous recompense for every wrong. The wrath of God is stored up against the injustice and sinfulness of humanity. Friends, you don't need to take matters into your own hands because God has retribution firmly in his hands and he will mete it out on the last day with fury and with fairness. Friends, praise the Lord. We live in a world with a moral fabric to it, woven together by our creator and judge. Atrocities like, like rape and abuse and murder and genocide and all the rest will be accounted for on the last day. If you've suffered as a victim of this type of evil, hear me. Even if your family fails you, even if the government, the one who is, God has given the power of the sword, according to Romans 13, even if the government fails you and our court system fails you, God will not. Those who violated you will be brought into account if they don't repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. You may think that your offender has skated by scot-free, that the courts of human justice have failed you, but rest assured that the court of the judge of all the earth is always in session. One day, every wrong will be made right. You might say, so John, what are you saying? Are you saying we should crave eternal hell for those who wrong us? No. Because it's not just God's final judgment that should settle our anger, but God's mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that we who deserve God's justice just as much as those who wrong us have been forgiven. That God's righteous anger and fury toward us has been calmed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Christians, whereas the heat of our passion used to inflate our anger toward retribution, the gospel is intended to do just the opposite, to deflate it. Not only should God's justice affect the way that we react to evil, his mercy transforms us to love our enemies, to, to do good to those who do wrong to us, to pray for those who mistreat us. 
Finally, number four, this passage is in the Bible to make sense of a bloody cross. If there's anything that Genesis 34 does, it's this. It makes sense of why the cross of Christ is necessary. Friends, the darkest chapter in the Bible isn't Genesis 34. The darkest chapters of the Bible are in the Gospels that tell of the betrayal and death of Jesus. The most horrific crime in human history was not the assault of Dinah, nor the murder of the Shechemites, but the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Why? Why would the sinless son of God, the one who never once lusted or lied or was angry, the one who always protected the vulnerable and exercised justice, why would he bleed and die upon a Roman cross? Look at Genesis 34. It was to quench the wrath of God for sinners like you find there. So that they, so that we, so that you might be forgiven of your sins if you trust in the death of Christ in your place. Genesis 34 highlights in, in HD 4K resolution what Paul quoted in Romans. There are none good. No, not one. Dinah wasn't entirely good. Shechem was a lust-filled assaulter. Jacob failed miserably to protect and defend his daughter to lead his sons. Hamor excused his son's sin for personal gain. Jacob's sons were full of deceit and bloodthirst. There is not one character in the story who gets a passing grade, let alone an A. They're all sinners, and God would be fully justified to wipe them away in wrath. So friends, it's only in the face of this type of human depravity that the cross makes sense. You know, everybody loves to cheer my last point about God's justice for human wickedness. Yes, that's right. Until it's in relation to their own sin. Then it's different. Perhaps you're saying, well, I can make sense of how a brutal assault and murder deserve God's wrath, but I, I don't deserve God's wrath. I'm not like that. I've never done any of those things. Friends, maybe you've never done those things, but what about what your heart has wanted? Have you ever been filled with lust for someone that you don't have the rights to? Have you ever been a passive parent? or wilted when you should have stood firm? Have you ever been filled with hate or the desire for retribution in your heart? Have you ever been more concerned about your reputation than the glory of God? There is no one in the room that could answer, nope, never done that. We are like Shechem. We are like the sons of Jacob, sons of wrath without Jesus destined for hell. And yet here's the good news of the gospel. The justice of God on the last day that will bring wrath for many will bring mercy for those who have trusted in Christ to save them. How can that be? It's not because their sins have skirted by unaccounted, but because it was accounted for at the cross. Justice was satisfied through the mercy of Christ dying in our place. One quick story. And finally, a light moment, and then we'll be done. Last night, 
Lindsay was sharing the gospel with my son, Cooper. Cooper had a very disobedient day. <laughs> and she was saying to him that Jesus came to die for sins like disobedience to parents so that Cooper might not know the wrath of God for his disobedience, but might be forgiven through the death of Christ in his place. And then Cooper and his five-year-old self, I don't know where he got these. Do not read into this. Be gracious to me, he said to Lindsay. What about Hadley? Oh, yeah, well, Hadley would be forgiven too if she trusted in Jesus. What about Californians? <laughs> Do not read into that. Yes, buddy, Californians would be forgiven of their sin if they trust in Christ alone. What about Donald Trump? Please do not read into that. I don't know where he got any of those, except for his sister. He, I think he pulled him out of left field to take the focus off himself. I don't think in his mind, it, you know, it was this, this ascending levels of depravity from Hadley to the Californians to Trump. I don't think that's what's going on. But I couldn't help but think what that type of conversation should look like. When we hear of the free offer of God's forgiveness being extended through the bloody death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, here's the right ascending order. Will God forgive the death row inmate, rightly condemned of murder? Oh yes, if that person comes to Jesus by faith. Will God forgive those who have wronged me and hurt me and violated me? Oh yes, if that person trusts in Christ to save them. Will God forgive me for my sins, for all the millions of wrongs that I've done in my life, great and small, known and unknown? Will you forgive me? And back comes the answer. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, Sometimes in the face of a passage like this, it's just even hard to know how to pray in response to it. So I pray that you would do your work through the word today, that you would chasten us where we need to be chastened, warned where we need to be warned, revulsed where we need to be revulsed, but then shocked by the mercy of Christ where we need to be shocked by the mercy of Christ to see your faithfulness to your promises and your free offer of salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we praise you for not just your forgiveness, of men like Shechem, if he would have repented, and the men like the sons of Jacob, if they repented of their sins, but for your repentance of sinners like us who deserve your wrath, and yet we turn to find ourselves forgiven in Christ. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.